Now, along the way, I would see adult male, female, and child of the second type of Martian humanoid, the so-called Homo martis martis, or Earth, or excuse me, uh, Martian men and women on Mars, not the ones that are the ants, the descendants of the human beings from this planet who were up there during the solar system catastrophe of 9500 BC, but the original Martians. But I was very wary of the adult men and women of, of that group because we were told that they would occasionally attack and eat our astronauts from Earth. They were members of a different humanoid species, and I don't know that you can call that cannibalism, but they would engage in predation against we and our colleagues. So I was very guarded walking from the, the uh, corkscrew through the dilapidated brick city. The, uh, the men had a very sort of haunted, sort of Marty Feldman kind of look. If you remember the actor Marty Feldman, sometimes with antennae coming out of their foreheads. The women were kind of cute, sort of like maybe Tibetan women in long caftans, but disconcertingly had sometimes four or six arms, which was kind of strange to get used to as I would see them. And then the kids were just really cute, almost like some of those little pictures of kids at Hiroshima in their Japanese gowns. Uh, cute, kids were very cute, but they would just be sort of staring at me from, from doors and windows. They did not speak English like the Homo Martis terrorists. So they were just sort of looking at me like, I wonder who this humanoid is walking through our our uh, our village, you know, where we live. Um, but I was always very guarded, having been told that you have to watch them because sometimes they'll jump us and uh, and eat us. And I thought, well, maybe they're just using the adult females as a lure, uh, and then they'll attack us to to eat us. So that was one uh, mission I had. You are listening to Exopolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, I'm back again with Andy Bashago on Exopolitics Today, and this is our fourth interview in a series. In our first two interviews, we discussed his experiences with Project Pegasus, as as a youngster, as a preteen, and with the the last interview, we began talking about his experiences on Mars through the Mars Jump Gate uh, that was based in El Segundo, California. So, with this fourth interview, we're going to be looking at some of the things that Andy saw on Mars and what he later wrote about in a series of papers. And so, welcome again to the show, Andy. Thank you for having me back on, Michael. Good to be with you again. Well, one of the things that I think would be very helpful to just kind of get a an idea of exactly how detailed your knowledge is of Mars is how many times did you go there using the jump gate from El Segundo from 1980 to 1984? Well, it was between July of 1981, after I was trained in summer of 80, to August of 1984. That's what, about 31 months? and Something like that. And um, 
uh, I went up about, I think about 20 times round trip from the, um, always leaving from the aeronautical repositioning chamber under the direction of Howard Hughes at 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo, California. Sometimes coming back via the other uh, so-called jump room or arc immediately west of the George Washington Bridge uh, in New York City. So I would estimate it was around 20 times. We really, it was, it was so irregular during that roughly three-year period that nobody was really keeping count. We would just sort of be called up every month or six to eight weeks and know I had to leave my ordinary life as a, as a history major at UCLA and, and drive over to El Segundo and take the, take the jump room to Mars. So in terms of what the mechanics of those uh, trips were, I mean, did, was it the same each time you, you show up at the same building and you go into the same room? And then when you come out, is it like you come out on Mars in the same location with the same things around you or were there differences? No, we always left. At least I always left. I can't speak for everybody because that's their experience. But in my experience, I always left through the arc or jump room or space elevator in El Segundo. But it was my impression that there were as many as seven to eight receiving facilities on the red planet. I've, I, I've sensed, or we discussed the fact, I'm not really sure, but it was clear that we were sort of in the middle latitudes of probably the northern hemisphere of Mars. I've estimated maybe around where Columbus, Ohio is on this planet, but they were clearly different. Like one looked like an underground parking garage, one was sort of like a grain elevator. That was the one that I coaxed Barry Satoro to help Bernard Mendez and I help him out of it for fear that he might be attacked by predators if, if we didn't help him out of the grain elevator-like uh, jump room on Mars. There were there was the one that we called the corkscrew that I would always go to when I had to bring that uh, data disk to that technician sitting inside that dilapidated building, inside the dilapidated brick uh, neighborhood of Mars. So I estimate it was about a, a, about eight different receiving places. And so by that, they allowed us to see different parts of sort of the middle latitudes of Mars. We were never in very hot terrain, nor in polar, cold or icy, you know, snowy terrain, but rather just sort of exploring around the middle latitudes and the temperature was quite quite uh, pleasant. And each time, I mean, with these eight receiving points, did you come out of a, a building or structure on the surface of Mars or was it underground? Sometimes it was underground. The first one I went at, uh, first and second time I went up, I went up to the one where you'd arrive in the sub-basement of a U.S. facility on Mars and then there was sort of a, concrete or cement stairway that you would take up to the surface but from there there's kind of like a dugout almost like a baseball dugout and you'd walk out of that dugout and it just looked like an aperture on the surface but then when you turned around and looked at what it was it was actually this strange big skull on the surface and that's one thing we learned about the way the u.s adapted its jump rooms on the surface apparently with the help 
and cooperation of the Martian humanoids, because many of them, including those we would run to to escape from predators, were actually these large skulls on the surface. Those indicated access points to the jump room. In fact, that second time I went up, when Courtney M. Hunt and I of the CIA ran to escape a predator um, um, on the surface, we jumped through the mouth of this skull and from there down those stairs, those, those cement stairs. So somewhere about one story below ground, but somewhere essentially on the surface. But they were all essentially a situation where the far wall of the jump room, that elevator, would open up just like the door you walk into to get into an elevator. And we were on, you know, in a, in a, uh, a subterranean or surface level uh, jump room facility on the red planet, which we also called the jump room. So it kind of had a, a binary usage, both the, the device that got us there and the facilities were being called jump rooms. So because we always knew it, that inside those facilities was, was a device to get us back to Earth. Now, was there any kind of protection at these uh, jump room facilities, these eight jump rooms scattered around the kind of equatorial region of Mars in terms of you know, guards or electronic devices or anything to prevent predators from getting in and accessing the, the actual jump room? Not really. I mean, by the way, it was the middle latitude, so it was between the equatorial and the polar regions. I think of the northern hemisphere. Um, could have been the southern for that matter. But um, no, in, in fact, we were always worried that predators might chase us into the facility. So not when I first started going the, up there in 1981, but around, I guess, 1983, I was given a photo flash gun with three settings, heat, stun, and kill. And... Um, in fact, the watchword when you were using that, that gun to light somebody's cigarette was do the right thing and set your gun for heat. And then we knew that with stun, the middle setting, they might be antagonized but not killed, especially the large predators. And then even if we use the kill setting, we could take down Martian humanoids or ordinary um, land animals, about the size of ordinary land animals on Earth, like let's say, I don't know, water buffaloes. We never did. I never killed any humanoid or animal on the red planet. But we knew that if they were very large, we might just antagonize the predators, even if we set the device for kill. So that's really the only protection we had. When we ran down the stairs, for example, after jumping through those large skulls on the surface, we often scampered down to get to the jump room per se as quickly as possible in the event that a, a particularly swift predator chased us down down this depth. Okay, so you, you went to Mars approximately 20 times. So each time you went, I mean, what happened? You'd, you'd go to El Segundo. Was there any kind of briefing that you received before going through that? I mean, what, what made you go to El Segundo uh, and then you go to Mars? And what happened when you got back? Were well, you debriefed? Yeah, it was sort of a very sub-Rosa sort of strategy they had to conceal the program. There were very few people working in that building. Um, there was one guard named Michael something. We had his last name at a certain point, but I don't, I don't even remember what it was now. But um, we basically would enter the middle elevator at the, 
at the bottom of the building, the center of the building. We would go up to the fifth floor and the door would open and there was sort of a Fijian suite, sort of like in a, in a law firm, a, across from the elevator. And there was one CIA pers- person working there. We would write our name, sign our name, and put our date of birth, our social security number, and our ID number for the program. In my case, they told me to use my UCLA student ID, 700-414-879. We would then go back into the elevator and if we by the time we had a photo flash gun we would stop at the seventh floor and go to our locker and i would get that photo flash gun and put it in my belt sort of tilting to the left side so it would be easy to withdraw from my belt to protect my colleagues on the surface then we would go back into the and by the way that was not a standard handgun because of the danger of bullets um, becoming agitated inside the when we were going to Mars it was just it was a photo flash gun um, it was more of a solid state sort of application so then we would go back into the elevator like contraption go up to the eighth floor and then when we were ready we were told to to look up at the center of the ceiling of the jump room and say, ready to, and, and then they would say, are you ready to go to Mars? And we had to say, I am ready to go to Mars. And then essentially in about five minutes, the rectangular structure or square structure, you know, box-like structure of the jump room would begin morphing into a cylindrical shape. So we had to actually steady our ability to stand by pushing to the left or right on the sides of that cylinder, like when you're walking through a water main underground. And that would last, when, when Mars was farther away from Earth, that would take about 20 minutes to get there. But as it during those three years, as it drew closer to the Earth, ultimately it was only eight minutes that it would take to get to the Red Planet. And as a result, we could have greater numbers of colleagues in the jump room with us. When we first started doing it, it was either our, by ourselves or one other astronaut. But by 1984, there were sometimes four of us in, in the jump room together. And then we would, you know, in about initially 20 minutes, the door would, it would just, in the last five minutes of that 20 minutes, the cylindrical shape would morph back into a standard elevator shape or you know, box-like shape. And the far door would, or far wall rather, would open up and we were in the jump room facility on Mars. And then we would either just walk out a building on the surface or up sort of cement stairs up to, up to the surface. So of those 20 times, how many times was uh, Barack Obama, uh, Barry Satoro, part of the mission with you? Uh, during a very early jump, I remember there were quite a number of people, and Brett Stillings and I remembered Obama looking out into this ravine and sort of asking him, him, him himself whether we were on the surface of the red planet. Um, I remember one time I was just sitting on this wall near one of the facilities, and I saw him walk in from the distance, and I just kind of smiled at him as if to say, well, here we are, Barry, and he said, he said to me something like, well, here we are. And I said, yeah, I know. 
And there was another time I mentioned when we came, when he, after Bernard Mendez and I arrived, he arrived in that, uh, that jump room that looked like a large grain elevator, kind of very similar to the ones that Arthur Neumann and Michael C. Ralph described. Might have been one of the older ones, I guess. And, and I had to sort of sit down on the edge of the jump room and say, Barry, you know, we're not here to harm you. Just because, because when he arrived, I guess he was looking at our knees because the height of the jump room was rather unusual. So I had to actually reach down and allow him to sort of grapple up the wall, but he was essentially afraid to do so. So I said, I had to sit down and talk to him for about 10 minutes. Barry, we're not the enemy. We're not going to harm you. We're your friends. We're your colleagues. So let me just give you my hand and we'll help pull you out of here. Because Barry, if you stay here, there's nothing stopping one of those predators from coming into this jump room. As you'll see when you get, when we help you up here, this is open, like an open parking garage where it's got a ceiling, but no walls. So there's no way to protect people inside this jump room from predators coming into this facility. So let me help you out. And, and we did, and, and then we went about our mission. So those are just some of the times I remember being on the surface with him. And he was basically a nice guy and a smart guy. So even when he sort of belittled our memories when he was present, we when we came forward, I basically continued to tell the truth that I had, you know, fond memories of the fact that among about the approximately 2,000 young people I met during my five years as an undergraduate. I was a fifth year senior at UCLA. Being such a large generation, you almost had to be uh, just for class availability, you know? And he, he was basically a nice guy and a smart guy. I even wrote to him in 2020 and said, you know, Barry, as I insisted on calling him, not Barack, of all the people I knew in my college years, you were certainly one of the people I would have trusted with the presidency. So I've always adhered to that fact. He was basically a very, <clears throat> a very smart, a very funny and likable young person. He, he, he laughed all the time at Ed Dame's jokes when we were in training at College of the Siskiyous in August and September of 1980. So I, I felt good about the fact that he'd been elected president. And I, we were not um, in any way, you know, anti-Obama individuals. I mean, I'm I've been a Democrat since I was seven years old, you know, and uh, so we just wanted to tell the truth about what we had done for the country and for the world. And I, I think my letter in 2020 helped him come around to that position because he went from mocking us with a joke in 2012 to admitting that there's a secret space program, but he just couldn't talk about it. So at least three times of your 20 missions, you remember seeing uh, Barack Obama up there on Mars with you. And yeah, was... there, there, were always, there were always changing the teaming. So sometimes I would be with like one person, like Bernard Mendez or Courtney Hunt of the CIA. Sometimes I would just be in a, in a, in a team of two, two with William Brett Stillings. Then sometimes it would be Courtney Hunt, Brett and I, or Bernard Mendez, Brett Stillings and I. Sometimes it might be Regina Dugan and Barry Satoro, who of course became Barack Obama, and myself, or with some other person. One time it was Bernard Mendez, Regina Dugan, Mary Jean Eisenhower, 
and a woman who was, I named, I, I think her name was uh, Linda Richmond. So they were always changing. Sometimes we met people who we didn't train with and who were actually quite prominent Americans, like Ross Perot Sr. and Admiral Stansfield Turner, Jimmy Carter's CIA director, both of whom were graduates of the Naval Academy. So there was that Naval Academy connection. I was supposed to have gone there, and one of our fellow trainees and sometimes somebody who I would sometimes see at El Segundo or on the surface was William Cameron McCool, who had just done a year at Annapolis. So they kind of were mixing and matching personnel. I certainly didn't train with or know Mary Jean Eisenhower before meeting her, before going on March 3rd of 1983. I don't know what the purpose of that was, but it seemed to be some experiment in testing whether they could just standardize trips of of different groups of Americans to the Red Planet and have them perform functionally on the surface. That's the only thing I, I can figure because sometimes when we would jump from El Segundo and, you know, and I, I would say, you know, ready to go to Mars and the process would begin, they wouldn't say, okay, Andy, get ready to meet, you know, Admiral Stansfield Turner, the former CIA director. In fact, Bernie and I just met him on the surface and when he came towards us, he was so well dressed in like with a cravat and a safari jacket and a hat that I thought it was the Bigfoot hunter, Peter Byrne. And they said, hi, fellas, uh, Stan Turner. <laughs> and I said, oh, Admiral Turner, pleased to meet you. You know, So it was kind of strange that way in the sense that they were mixing people so frequently who were either prominent Americans that we never dreamed of meeting on the surface or just other ordinary Americans who we had no prior contact with, but many were people we had trained with. And so we might see them three, four, five times on the surface, but never all the time. You know, So I, I'm estimating probably that'd be a good guess of how much contact I had with Obama on the surface, maybe three to five times out of those 20 trips, something like that. And with this uh, role of just staying up there and surviving, uh, being on the surface, uh, being able to evade predators. Was that mission pretty much the same uh, for, throughout the whole 20 times you went up there? No, I, I was ultimately given a task where before going, I mean, I'd be called at the dorms at UCLA or an apartment I was living in, in there in Westwood, and I would have to first drive over to a print shop in Santa Monica, California. And at the back of that shop, this government operative would give me one of those three and a quarter inch plastic discs that we were still calling floppy discs. But this was like 10 years before those came out in the commercial sector. And I would put it in my pocket, drive to El And by the way, that had information from Rand Corporation of, 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 of Santa Monica. Of that, I'm certain. And I would drive over to El Segundo and go up and I would always arrive at the jump room facility called the Corkscrew. I'd walk out, I'd walk through the dilapidated brick city into uh, the, the all underneath the roof of a dilapidated building. And then there was this technician there that never said anything to me. In fact, we started to call him Daryl Dragon. Remember for Tony Tennille's husband, because he was so quiet. That was just our nickname for him, because we would give him something and then he wouldn't say anything. I would say, well, good to see you again. I would try to chit-chat with him, but he would never talk. I guess because he wanted to avoid being detected by predators on the surface. 
because he just had to sit there and do he's working like eight different computers on this desk or table underneath that building so i would give him that um that disc and then just go back through the dilapidated brick city back to the corkscrew and go home now along the way i would see adult male female and child of the second type of martian humanoid the so-called homo martis martis or earth or excuse me uh, martian men and women on mars not the ones that are the ants the descendants of the human beings from this planet who were up there during the solar system catastrophe of 9500 bc but the original martians but i was very wary of the adult men and women of of that group because we were told that they would occasionally attack and eat our astronauts from earth they were members of a different humanoid species and i don't know that you can call that cannibalism but they would engage in predation against we and our colleagues so i was very guarded walking from the the uh, corkscrew through the dilapidated brick city the uh, the men had a very sort of haunted sort of marty feldman kind of look if you remember the actor marty feldman sometimes with antennae coming out of their foreheads the women were kind of cute sort of like maybe tibetan women in long caftans but disconcertingly had sometimes four or six arms which was kind of strange to get used to as i would see them and then the kids were just really cute almost like some of those little pictures of kids at Hiroshima in their Japanese gowns. Uh, cute, kids were very cute, but they would just be sort of staring at me from, from doors and windows. They did not speak English like the Homo Martis Terrace. So they were just sort of looking at me like, I wonder who this humanoid is walking through our, our, uh, our village, you know, where we live. Um, but I was always very guarded, having been told that you have to watch them because sometimes they'll jump us and uh, and eat us. And I thought, well, maybe they're just using the adult females as a lure, uh, and then they'll attack us to, to eat us. So that was one uh, mission I had. I remember walking a considerable distance over the surface and dropping something else off and seeing some rather strange creatures at like an intersection. But that's a very blocked memory, very, very distant memory. One time I remember going under surface and being protected by some non-humans on the surface from some kind of danger on the surface. And we walked a considerable distance underground. One time Courtney Hunt and I had been invited by that second type of humanoid, the Homo Martis Martis, you know, the original Martian type, to go into his underground lair. And all I remember is that it was about a story below ground and it had kind of this elaborate paisley design on the ceilings and was being run by sort of pneumatic tubing. But he was so strange that when I was walking behind him trying to keep up with him, Courtney could because Courtney was taller and had a longer stride than I. But I was my current height, five feet, ten inches tall. And this, this Martian humanoid was shorter than I, but he's walking very fast. And I thought, I said to myself, great, now he's going to invite us underground and maybe that's where he's going to eat us. Because, you know, I knew he was of the type that occasionally would cannibalize our astronauts. And this, this Martian humanoid looked back at me and cackled like he had heard 
what I had said to myself. So that, that original type of Martians was very psychic and, and kind of strange looking, quite frankly. So I wasn't really comfortable with the guy, but he just kind of took us down into his residence and just kind of showed us where they live. So there was some pre-planning for that, apparently through Courtney Hunt, but I certainly didn't have that degree of reach, you know, contact into the Martian humanoid civilization, but somebody did, either Hunt or somebody else at the CIA or somebody else on the program, because that invitation to go into one of their underground uh, residences was set up before we even went up that day. In fact, Hunt might have met me there in El Segundo and said, you know, Andy, today we're going to go up and one of the uh, the second type of humanoids is going to show us where he lived. So it's going to be quite quite interesting. But I don't know how that was set up. He said that was my, my major problem with the way the U.S. intelligence community was working. We were being asked to do extremely dangerous and exceptional things that required true courage, and yet we were often kept in the dark. You know, I might have mentioned it already, but I said to Hunt one time, Courtney, you know how you're like an extraterrestrial? And he said, no. And I said, you only give answers to desired questions. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I, you're, you're, you know, this, the, the government is asking me to go to Mars, and I ask you a straight question, and you just look at me? Like, that's not an approved question that you can answer? I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. We're risking our lives up there, and you won't answer our questions. You know, and so I remember I would ask a specific scientific question like, how are we breathing up there? There's hardly any vegetation. And he said, from the lithosphere. So somebody like Hunt of the CIA, my dad of the Army, Ed Dames of the Army, uh, and, and Admiral Stansfield Turner of CIA and Navy, or Ross Perot of Navy, when you would ask them a straight question, they would usually give you um, a, a scientific explanation. But if you asked anything operational about the way the programming was functioning, often, especially the CIA people like Hunt, would just stare at you like that you hadn't been approved for that information. And that's kind of what I've been working at trying to correct in our common culture is the damage that official state secrecy has done to the development, the, the forward progress of American and world civilization. So it's worth emphasizing that, that this was a CIA operation. Uh, Courtney Hunt was your, I guess, handler. And, and uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. There were CIA people like Hunt on it. Obviously, Admiral Stansfield Turner had been CIA director. Many people had no ostensible direct CIA connection like myself. I was listed as a Navy officer. My dad was a major in the second reserve of the U.S. Army, having been a private first class during, uh, during World War II. There were but, some you've also, but you've also said he, was a, he worked for the CIA. Well, he didn't work for the CIA. He had reporting requirements to all U.S. agencies, including intelligence agencies, and all military departments. That's listed literally on his 1964 resume. So I think Bernie Mendez gave the best explanation. These things were called special programs. So I think the way to contextualize it is as a defense program that was pulling people from the civilian sector and the intel sector and the military and if they weren't in the military assigning them to that before going and then 
there clearly were reporting requirements to CIA because it's the Central Intelligence Agency. So I think the greatest connection to CIA, the one I've emphasized the most, is that on both Project Pegasus and Project Mars, there were reports being made about what they were learning. In the case of Project Pegasus, about future events, and sometimes things they didn't know about past events, and the case of Project Mars, what was on Mars. So clearly there were being um, there were intel reports being drafted. That's why I ended up meeting John Alexander McCone when I was on Pegasus. He had been CIA director, um, or so-called DCI, Director of Central Intelligence, from 1960 to 64. And he had that discussion with my dad about what this thing called the Internet was going to be. But it was not a CIA program, and I think that a kind of a distortion of what it was is attributed to a particular person in exopolitics who was always calling it sort of the DARPA CIA Project Pegasus or the, the, the CIA Mars Jump Room program. They had CIA people on them, but they had people from many other branches of, of uh, the military and many other federal agencies. These were multi-agency task forces. Okay, well, um, one of the curious aspects of the missions to Mars was you have these VIPs like Admiral Stansfield Turner, the former CIA director, and Ross yeah, Perot. Yeah, he was a heck of a nice guy. I mean, I would have voted for him for president, but just a heck of a nice guy and a real, right. a now, real courageous, uh, you know, happy-go-lucky adventurer. Okay, so he he was part of one of the missions, at least, to Mars. So what did he do up there? Was he doing the same thing as the rest of you, like just having a presence up there, escaping predators, staying safe, and then just well, coming I'd back? Well, I don't know. I mean, I know that just going up there and walking around and exploring was what I was initially doing. And then I was an errand bringing that that data or whatever information up on that computer disk and then there were other missions where I was delivering something there wasn't a whole lot of lateral discussion saying well Admiral Stansfield Turner is up here doing this Ross Perot is doing that you know we would even run into British teams and just have discussions with what we were finding on the surface so there was a heck of a lot of exploration going on but one time that, that time that I saw Obama walk in from the distance and I just kind of smiled at him, almost laughing, like, you know, now we're on the surface. He said, well, here we are. You know, I didn't know what everybody else was doing up there. Um, Certainly, when we look at the fact that Obama became president and Dugan became the first uh, female to direct DARPA and the 19th director of DARPA, what, on July 20th of 2009, I can't exclude the possibility that some of my fellow astronauts were who were really actually u.s chrononauts during the advent of interdimensional travel right because we weren't going up by rocket that's for sure space plane it was clearly interdimensional transit uh, up there i don't know what they got implicated in maybe they were even brought into the breakaway civilization by interacting with u.s and british and russian personnel on the surface i i think that as in the law, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And as Rumsfeld said, we know what we know, we know what we don't know, and we don't know what we don't know. So I can only hazard a guess 
as to what others were doing on the surface because that kind of lateral disclosure of information was not being adhered to in the program. And I actually complained to Hunt of the CIA about the fact that essentially the CIA people were acting like a group of paranoid. You know, it's almost like when you, when you, you know, preach to the, to the paranoid, you provoke the paranoid. I might have even said that to him. I said, I need to know answers to these questions or I'm going to stop going. This is not reasonable, a reasonable way of treating us. So when you look at the prominence of an Admiral Stansfield Turner or somebody as wealthy as Ross Perot, I think he'd already made a billion dollars or more with what, General Dynamics or something. They, they must have been doing something more elaborate than what I was doing. I mean, after all, I was only 19 when I went up there. I was only 22 when I stopped going there. I don't know what these mid-career professionals were up to. Maybe they were putting in place an American, British, and Russian-based permanent presence there. That would seem to be what the Israeli General Haim Ashed revealed on what? December 9th of 2020, a couple of months after I wrote um, President Obama and Trump about the need to declassify our, our presence on Mars. And in the case of Obama, his involvement in the program. Um, I, I just don't know. I would really hazard a guess because we might stand around if we ran into some other American or British uh, explorers up there and talk about what we had seen, a particular creature, a particular threat scenario we had where we ran away from a predator successfully, what we did to evade, um, what it was like. I mean, when Stanfield Turner came over to Bernard Mendez and I, he said something like, is this a weird, wicked place or what, gentlemen? I mean, he was almost ecstatic that he was on another planet. Um, so I have very fond memories of, of uh, uh, Admiral Turner. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, people would often walk and cross our paths on the hinterland, but there wouldn't be an elaborate discussion of what they were doing. There would just be sort of chit-chat about what they were seeing. Um, so I'm sure some of it was more operationally involved than I, and I would not be surprised given the age at which he reached the presidency and the relative genius of Regina Dugan, who after all would go on to earn a PhD from Caltech, that their functions up there were more elaborate than mine, but I, I don't know. That's, that's why we wanted to come forward to bring everybody into, into discussion. We were hoping to have like a conference with 20 of the Mars astronauts where everybody could talk about their memories so we would develop a greater understanding about the total program. But unfortunately, a lot of rather prominent Americans chose to remain silent, including Obama, Dugan, and uh, Mary Jean Eisenhower. Now, did you ever have formal debriefings when you got back from any of your 20 missions? We would always have a debriefing of about, I would estimate of about a half hour to even an hour by Major Ed Dames. His office was down, I believe on the fifth floor. So it was, the eighth was where the jump room was, the seventh was where the lockers were. And then we went down a couple more flights. It might've been the fifth floor. And then, of course, uh, Howard Hughes' office was on the other side of the building on the fourth floor of that, I'm sure. William Roycrow took me over there when Hughes wanted to meet me after um, 
I saved Bernie Mendez's life on the surface. And uh, he said, are you Andy? Is this Andy? Hi, Andy. Howard Hughes. But almost after every time, well, after every time back, we would first have to come down from the jump room level down the elevator and it would open just as any elevator on the fifth floor. And then we would walk down to Ed Dame's office and he would debrief us by saying, okay, Andy, what happened first? Then what happened? Okay, this happened. And then, and then what did you do then? And then what happened? And he would just grill us constantly for like a half to a full hour and he would be writing it down. So that's one of the things I want to discuss with you. Um, I'm now saying that we were U.S. chrononauts in Project Mars during the advent of interdimensional travel because I think that because they were using this box-like aeronautical repositioning chamber, they were actually exploring whether we were going to the actual Mars that we see sometimes in the night sky or some other planet in some other dimension. But, you know, I've, I've thought about all the reasons that it was the actual Mars. Like, that's what we were trained for. That's what everybody going had been told, what we were concluding we were on the surface. And there was that one time that William Stillings and I looked up and we saw the Martian moons, Phobos and Deimos, one of them rather irregularly shaped, or, or both of them, right above us in a, a, a dusk sort of sky. And we were rushing to get back to one of the jump rooms to come to get home before it got too cold. So we saw the Martian moons. Now, it could not have been a virtual reality of some kind or a so-called metaverse, as it's now being called, because it was just too elaborate. It was, it was an actual place. There's no way it could have been fake. But I think that there was strong prima facie evidence. And this is an answer to your question the last time we spoke. I think they were using us to determine whether they were sending us to the actual Mars or a Mars-like planet in another dimension and i don't think it's an accident that several of those books about the series blade by richard lord where he travels interdimensionally through this elevator like box was put in my bedroom closet as like a 14 year old i think that was actually a preparation for what i would be experiencing just a few years later well, you know, maybe we can kind of like hone in a little bit there uh, of that possibility that rather than it being Mars, you were being taken to a planet in another dimension or another location and maybe another solar system altogether. So we, uh, we already talked about, uh, you know, things like you not being able to kind of like leap as far as you would expect on a place like Mars, which has low G. We right. talked about that, uh, you know, that your leaps would be four feet rather than eight feet, that that was an anomaly. Uh, but also the oxygen level. I mean, was the oxygen kind of like uh, normal? Was it like, uh, you know, being at a 11,000, 12,000 feet elevation? And, and the temperature, you know, what were you wearing? It was deficient. Now, when I use the phrase hypoxia, people said, well, you would have passed out or you would have gotten tunnel vision. One time I did get tunnel vision. Frequently, I would get screaming pain in my legs and feet. I still have neuropathy in my legs, primarily, thank God, from it, I believe, now that I'm 61. So we were being injured in some cases. But anyway, it was deficient in oxygen. I've estimated at the 11 to 12,000 feet above sea level on Earth. 
that's when I when I carried Bernie Mendez to safety about a mile on my shoulder. I had to put him down two or three times, and then bend down into a fireman's carry and lift Bernie up again on my uh, my right shoulder. I was then 180, just as I was yesterday when we weighed weighed me, and Bernie was 160, a couple inches shorter than I. And yet I was able to do that, and it was really difficult. By the time I got to the jump room facility called the Corkscrew, I was literally pancaked out, so I was almost collapsing underneath him as I brought him into the jump room and dropped him in the, the space elevator and said, I don't know whether he's alive, but he was still breathing out there on the surface. Please get him home. And they just closed the door and sent Bernie back. And Bernie says he woke up in a Los Angeles hospital, probably Daniel Friedman there in Mar Vista, or Marina Del Rey. That was probably the closest. But anyway, it was definitely deficient oxygen enough to one time I started hyperventilating. One time I had to use the hand activated ventilator that we were given and that we always took with us. Um, one time I got uh, tunnel vision, but many times I got screaming pain in the leg. And that's why I meant by hypoxia. It wasn't critically deficient, but it was just a lower amount of oxygen. And, and what was the temperature like? What, what kind of temperature was it there in, that, in those mid-latitudes? It was sort of like Los Angeles on a spring day. And of course, I had been living in L.A. since 1972, having moved there at age 11 uh, in 1972. So it was a very comfortable um, sort of spring day in Los Angeles kind of heat. But we knew that as nightfall was approaching, we had to try to get back in the event because it was going to be colder at night. But then again, sometimes we went up at night and it wasn't too cold. It was sort of, again, like Los Angeles at night on a spring day. And that was, I think, because of the areas of Mars they were selecting. That famous picture of trees on uh, on Mars that was published all over the world in really every newspaper, except in, in Britain, I think, the Independent, um, certainly every British tabloid, uh, there were trees on Mars. That's where I found the creature, the striding gremlin, uh, and that's been published. Uh, yes, I was going to talk times. about that later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was comfortable. You know, I was frequently wearing just a T-shirt with some blue jeans, a leather belt, and some, uh, some you know, crew socks, athletic socks, and uh, some um, construction boots, some sort of tan leather construction boots or those kind of Nike Caldura type hiking boots. And that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was, you know, shoving my photo flash gun through the belt. So it was pointing over to the left. That was about it. We weren't wearing hats. We didn't need hats or visors to see there. It wasn't a pleasant location, but having hiked extensively in the Western United States, it wasn't that formidable in terms of a, a biome to be exploring. It was, scary in the sense that we were worried will the jump room get us home will we be able to evade a predator if it if we get near it um will we be able to withstand the dehydration because even when like brett stillings would bring water up in a bottle about 60 percent of it would be lost inside the jump room it would just sort of evaporate or go through some time domain from the bottle when we were going to Mars in the jump room. So it was often 
a situation where you had to sort of use this technique to produce saliva to wet our throats so we wouldn't start coughing from a dry cough. Maybe that damaged my kidneys. So it was rather formidable in terms of being a, a dangerous, dry, you know, vast, muddy wasteland, as, as Hoagland described it. But, um, but it was an inhabited vast, muddy wasteland. And it was really probably as dangerous because we were out in the open vis-a-vis that second type of Martian humanoid and the uh, predators up there. There was really no tree or to climb up or to hide behind. There were very sloping hills to run up with no guarantee that a predator couldn't also run up that hill. Um, the jump rooms were few and far between, you know, to get home. So we we're pretty much exposed. I'm sure that was calling, causing all of us uh, trepidation as a result. I kind of have described my time up there as sort of a, a long extended sort of low level nightmare. It was, in, it was impossible to completely lose the sense of being in immediate danger and that this might be the end of my life. And then when I saw two of my colleagues bitten to death by predators, I thought, well, that's the way I might be going. In fact, when Bob, the first one, was bitten to death right in front of Courtney Hunt and I, and some of his blood and viscera actually sort of landed by our feet, I thought, well, at least it's going to be fast if this is the way I go. But um, it was... It was not pleasant to be up there. It was a formidable experience and yet survivable. And I think it points up the ultimate courage of, of, of potentially everyone. I mean, to have 17, 18, and 19-year-olds up there dealing with that level of danger, I think indicates the, the courage that many humans have shown throughout the world at many times when confronted with a challenge. I mean, we... We dealt with it, and, and, and we prevailed. Now, I know that um, you've said that there were up to 600,000 humans on Mars who were volunteers, conscripts, abductees, etc. So how did you get that figure? And was that part of the program that they had to kind of like sustain? No, that, that was not, not my figure. I, from the program itself, I was told after going up there many years after, 30 years after leaving the program, by William Whitecrow, my colleague, who had actually, I had helped save his life and he mine, and both of us, Brett Stilling's life, with two AR-15s fighting pterodactyls. So I remembered Whitecrow. He was a super soldier. And he said that when we were up there, there were 1,500 other Americans up there. But the figure that there were 600,000 up there was offered, I believe, by David Wilcock in 2006. And I have no way of questioning that amount, but I have no way of affirming that that figure either. Okay, so according to the figures from William Whitecrow, we're talking 15,000 Americans on Mars. 1,500. Sorry, 1,500 Americans on Mars. On a planet 40% the size of of Earth. So I would only, you know, it it would be kind of like, every second or third trip up there where we would run into a Stansfield Turner or mm. Ross Perot or whoever. But that you know, 1,500 was, figure, was that 
one of the primary mission objectives, which was to maintain a, a continuous presence on, on Mars of so many Americans, and that that was part of why you and the others were going there through these eight different jump gates located on the surface of Mars all over the place. I think that's pretty clear based on what they said during our training and what was going on operationally when we were there. They said that they were trying to acclimate, especially acclimate the Martian humanoids to our presence to ultimately expand the Earthling presence on the Red Planet. So yes, I would say that that's clearly an operational objective that we had. That's kind of what I meant when Ed Dames was joking when he said, so does everybody get it? Your, your, your task is to go up there and be seen and not eaten. He was kind of explaining to us how we should walk around in a friendly way so as not to frighten the Martian humanoids and even befriend them if possible. That was the reason for Stanley Ann Dunham's lecture about uh, cross-cultural communications and uh and yet uh not get uh, not become a victim of, of mm -hmm. predators up there so yes i think they were trying to acclimate the martian humanoids to our earthling presence to expand the earthling presence on the red planet okay so now i want to move on to a paper you wrote in 2008 titled discovery of life on mars and that was based on an image uh, taken by the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit in 2007, and the image you refer to it as PIA 10214. Correct. And, and so that, that is one of these uh, very detailed pictures that NASA has provided on its uh, on the JPL website. And in, in that picture, you saw many shapes that you described as humanoid and animal shapes, so I guess the the first question is, uh, why do you think this was actually evidence of life on Mars rather than pareidolia? I mean, I, I know your experiences oh. are distinct. To no, it's, we know it's not pareidolia. And in fact, my father had shown me one of those images, the humanoid being on Silkowski Ridge, in around summer of 1969, and then in fall of 1971, I was permitted to read my 2008 paper 37 years before it was written because of the quantum access capability that Project Pegasus gave the U.S. government. Now, when I read it, I said, Dad, what's the purpose of reading this paper and studying all the images and captions and relating the captions to the photographs? And he said, because when you write it, we want to, ha to have as much information about life on Mars as possible. Then, in 2008, there was a controversy about this little lady. I call it the beings on the edge, but it was this little image of a lady on a clifftop. But really what that image was, when I studied it, was it was a statue with a male companion to the left of that little lady, having slid down the hill, and then on that hill, there was a kind of a rock drawing of a sort of bearded Jesus-like figure in a blue suit looking forward with a kind of a plumed serpent, serpent like a Quetzalcoatl from the Aztecan or Mayan um, motifs, biting it on the neck and with blood shooting down the, the front of the bearded human. 
So I was covering what was on Mars from the point of view of not just humanoids and different animal species, but also statues and sculptures, you know, and rock paintings and stuff. We were showing that there was evidence of both current and, um, and ancient habitation of the red planet. And of course, I knew that was true. And in fact, let me explain why I called it the discovery of life on Mars. You know, I was a social scientist who had graduated from Cambridge. Who else graduated from Cambridge? Well, Charles Darwin, Origin of the Species. So when I spent all of 2008 reviewing that image, PIA 10214, and beginning with that picture of the little lady, I wanted a title that would stand for all time as announcing discovery ship of the fact that Mars was inhabited. But wait a minute, I had known that since 1980 when Ed Dames did a a review for us in the training program of life on Mars and then walked down the aisle of the classroom and said, guess who tells the world about this? And he's, and, and everybody goes, who? And he sticks out his hands and goes, Andy, ta-da. So I had been apprised of my future discovery ship, if you will, of life on Mars without disparaging the brilliant work of Tom Van Flanderen, Dr. Van Flanderen from 2006 in that famous conference at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., where he showed different sort of ancient vegetation on Mars. But I noted that Dr. Tom Flanderen, uh, Tom Van Flanderen, stated that this was evidence of life on Mars like that, that died out around like 3 million years ago or something, around the time that life was developing on this planet. So what we, we first did was we showed the images of humanoids and animal species and the artwork on the surface, the artifacts. And then we proved that they were living creatures by going back to the same location and finding that those creatures were not there. In other words, some of the humanoid and animal species would move, like my image of the striding gremlin or um, Bern, um, uh, Ross uh, Curley's uh, image of the speckled gremlin. We give we give all these findings names. So in other words, Michael, we I was announcing the fact that there was life on Mars because deep in my mind I knew that there was, despite the fact that all of us would remain blocked from the time I left the program in '84. It was 25 years before that 2008-2009 period where I wrote the paper and then came forward publicly. But as I was finding things on the surface, I thought, well, that is clearly a three-dimensional image. We'll just have to go back to that location and verify that it's moved. And, and we proved that into, uh, into 2009, especially with the help of Ross Curley, Lewis Reinhardt, and other people associated with the group that I founded, the Mars Anomaly Research Society, after I wrote my paper. So it's not pareidolia. Same with, I would also say the the argument that we have to prove that there are microbes on Mars. I don't believe that's true. I was using a specialized method to see what was there, and I put the methodology in the paper. But people would not get that computer, which was a particular kind of Hewlett-Packard entertainment laptop PC, and they wouldn't be seeing what I had found with the same depth. So that paper not only will stand the test of time, of proving that Mars is inhabited, but it was known to be doing that when I was a little kid. 
they knew 40 years before I, I, I would write the paper, going back to 1968, when my dad read mm -hmm. select passages to me from the paper, that it would be the, the, the right. paper that would you know, be known as the origin of the species of, 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 of habitation of another planet. Okay, all right. So that 2008 paper that was referred to well before time uh, by others in the, in the uh, J Jump Gate program or the Pegasus program as, as you being someone that makes the life on Mars known to to the worlds but that's still kind of like uh, you know that doesn't kind of settle the question as to what it is that you actually saw in the in those in that image uh, that NASA image uh, PIA 10 to 14 that you know those shapes are all actually what you describe them as as opposed to what critics would say well that's just clear pareidolia it just looks like that. My conclusion and that of my organization, Mars, was that those arguing pareidolia actually had lower levels of what we call PQ, or perceptual quotient. We proved over the last, certainly over the last 14 years since the paper was written, we've published all kinds of evidence of life on Mars, including humanoids, animals. You know, on Coast on 2013, I showed a perfect intaglio you know, face forward image of that second time of Martian humanoid. We're not saying that that was an alive humanoid. It was a drawing by those humanoids, I guess, to identify the owner of that residence. But in some of the pictures, you can see movement, you can see form. And after I wrote the paper, Virginia Olds of the CIA called me to congratulate me and say, she said, well, you did it, Andy. It was highly accurate. In fact, the two type you describe, as you know, live cooperatively, primarily underground. So congratulations for writing a paper that's going to stand the test of time as the scientific paper showing life forms on another planet. That's how it was known within the U.S. intelligence community. And as I said, Michael, regarding getting past the pareidolia-based skepticist argument about my findings, we proved that. See, that's why everything is... There's kind of been this lag effect in even what we've proven to discount people skeptically knocking down what we discovered. We showed alternative images where something we had photographed that was clearly a life form was no longer there, like this riding gremlin, like the speckled gremlin. We would, you know, we would go back to the same location and nothing would be there. So now somebody could always say, well, you're looking at images that were taken a million or more miles away. Maybe it was some photo effect uh, from some well, other dimension. But well, just, yeah, just, that, just to that kind of like true of, of a picture of Abraham Lincoln, you know, or, or whoever. Okay, I just know. want to kind of hone in on that. You know, when you say you took a picture, or, or you you look, you compared a picture, or one of the rover images, and you compared it in terms of what that same picture showed at a later time, and that you could deduce from that that certain shapes that you construed to be people or animals had moved so now that wasn't in your 2008 paper that was must have been in some other paper because i didn't see that well, i did yeah i did a series of occasional papers in 2009 10 11 and then i just got so busy doing interviews on tv and radio that i couldn't continue that 
I really loved it. I was taking spare time for my law practice to write those occasional papers. I don't know how many I wrote for Project Mars, but it's 50 to 75. In one of those, I showed time delay photographs of the speckled gremlin that Ross Curley found. And there's like three images where you see the speckled gremlin and then he starts disappearing. In other words, it was like a time-lapse photograph. I think I called that paper the time-lapse time lapse proof of the speckled gremlin on Mars or something like that. I was giving them very functional titles, those circulars or occasional papers that I was writing. So we not only showed about how we went back and found that a life form was no longer where we had previously identified it, but in one case, I showed one literally disappearing from view. In other words, he was moving or something, and as a result, the photos were kind of like a time-lapse effect. So that's been out in public now for over 10 years. When they do things like publish some door saying, oh, could this be a door of some Martian residence? Well, look, nine years ago, I published that that Martian humanoid, and George Norrie put it on coasttocoastam.com, and it was of the second type of Martian that we had spoken of since 2008, the, the Homo martis martis. It was a, it was a perfect rendering with with the antennae and everything. And, and so there's kind of this strange lag effect where it's almost like, I have to be honest with you, I, I kind of think that people are making up what they want to believe. I've often said that we have to arrive at our beliefs based on our findings rather than our findings based on our beliefs. People are taking their beliefs and then it's shaping their findings to the point where they've been ignoring facts in evidence um, for over 10 years now. And the Peridola argument was knocked down when we showed not only that some of the creatures had disappeared from later photographs and hence had to have left some way, and but also that time lapse I, I published of the speckled gremlin. So um, now the people who say that we have to prove that there are microbes on Mars, well, that's playing into NASA's disinformation campaign. NASA is a military agency that has been lying about extraterrestrial life forms for 70 years. It was 70 years ago this year that my dad was assigned to the Ramjet project to chase the ET craft away from our planet. And they're still doing TV shows of, oh, paranormal caught on camera. Look, are there lights in the sky? They're doing the same thing with the Mars stuff. After we published all this fascinating evidence of incredible images of creatures and artifacts, cave rock-type paintings and intaglios, images of heads, faces, profiles, that seems to be the primary Martian uh, art form. They did all that work architecting Hoagland's publishing of the face on Mars at Cydonia on CNN. But as I wrote in one of those occasional papers for Mars, my organization, there are thousands of faces on Mars. That's their primary art form. So the people of the world don't know that yet. And I think that would be like people of the world not knowing about the existence of Darwin's paper, Origin of the Species, 10 years after it was published. Because when I was a child and later, that's what the U.S. government informed me. Get ready, Andy, because 
your name will be known in history for having published this particular paper. Of course, you know, Ed Dames kind of made a joke out of it because we had been schooled on life forms on Mars before going up there. But I essentially introduced that to the world. And it was based on original research, not neither because it had been provided to me or I had read it, you know, 37 years earlier. I, I, I spent probably a thousand hours in 2008 working on that paper. January to November of 2008. And as I said in the paper, it's a treasure trove of images of Martian humanoids, different animal species, uh, statues, and and sculptures. And I stand by that claim because for the last over 10 years, what, 14 years, about 35 different anomalous, 25 with our group and then 10 independent anomalous, have shown all manner of life forms and artifacts on the red planet. But they're keeping alive sort of this this sort of intentional suspension of disbelief. Not unlike when Cliff High said, Landy must be delusional, he can't time travel because time travel doesn't exist. So if somebody wants to believe, well, we now we first have to prove whether microbes exist. My response is, would we have to prove that microbes exist in Africa before we show pictures of elephants and lions and, and antelopes and, and giraffe. I mean, it's there. Not just I, but now 35 brilliant anomalous have continued my work, and it's been a massive success. Mars is now the largest and most successful Martian anomaly organization in the world. And everybody we've asked who wasn't affiliated with us has agreed to publish mm-hmm. their uh, their five or so best images in our upcoming uh, magnum opus showing that that first 20 years of discoveries since my paper in 2008 but it's going to be coming out in around 2028 so it's been proven and it's just this kind of intentional disinformational campaign being running run by the establishment scientific um realm in western civilization that is impeding individuals' um, access to these truths. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I think a lot of people would focus on in terms of uh, there being life on the surface of Mars is food. I mean, how, how could they feed themselves? But one of the things that supports your your experiences and, and your analyses is these giant forests and plants that were first discovered by Thomas Van Flander back in the year 2000 and published on the web website of uh, the, the Mars Anomaly Research Group. Uh, and uh, these clearly show what are these giant plants using some of the, the Mars images. And, and J.P. Skipper kind of put this out back around. Uh, he wrote a nice big paper about it and put it on his website in 2001. And clearly it shows forests and giant plants on Mars. So, you yes, know, by the way, I was in communication uh, with... Yeah, with let, let, me, let, me, let, let, let me finish. Yeah. So, okay. so, uh, so these forests on Mars show that you actually have... Uh, vegetation growing there and where you have vegetation I mean you have a potential food source for animals and and when you have like predators as you say 
uh, you know, fifteen hundred of of people were at any one Americans at any one time on Mars, establishing a presence and surviving. These predators needed to have a constant food supply, and obviously that wouldn't have been humans um, traditionally, historically. So it would have been the the plants and the uh, indigenous herbivores or whatever other insect life or animal life that they were able to sustain. And then you have a whole food chain, and at the apex of that, you would have the predators. Right. Now, I was in communication with J.P. Skipper. In fact, after I published my paper, The Discovery of Life on Mars, on 12-12-2008, he warned me to watch my back because they did not want this information shared with the public. Now, Tom Van Flanderen did show vegetation, but he offered the opinion that it wasn't current vegetation. It was fossil fossils of ancient vegetation. J.P. Skipper, I don't believe, ever did anything but suggest it may have been current. Now, the National Geographic published um, an article or even a, a, um, an entire edition about the green region on Mars, which I think is about the size of Texas on this planet. Um, I'm trying to think of what the date was. It might have been like 1958. That's what's coming up, but we'd have to check that. Somebody gave me a copy of that, but it's in one of my storage facilities. Um, and so, yes, there is vegetation in some areas. The point I was making about that earlier was that it still is, is, a, is a very denuded planet. There are some specific areas where I mentioned, for example, I was in that one. In fact, the time that we met um, Admiral Turner, um, Bernie Mendez and I met Admiral Stansfield Turner, where there was sort of vegetation like up in the high desert of California out near Edwards Air Force Base. And then, but, but I don't remember ever being in a really rich, verdant environment on the red planet. Most of the places we were walking were so denuded of life that there were only just small little grasses and, and sedges and worts, just tiny little filamentous vegetation. Now I did see, you know, in the law of evidence, you're, you're able to, it's permissible to testify as what you saw, as to what you saw or what you did and have it be treated as direct evidence. So I and the other Mars astronauts can testify what we saw about food gathering on the surface. I saw food gathering one time, one time by one of the predators. It was running and killed one of those water buffalo-like creatures. Another time, I just walked across a plane, and I saw two of the Martian humanoids using ropes to tow one of those water buffalo-like creatures, presumably into their underground layer. I still stand by my um, understanding that despite the location of some areas of vegetation on the surface, Mars is so denuded of life, so desertified, and so such little life, both animal and vegetable, that it is essentially a climax population, a climax biome, where meat eaters are surviving through predation upon other meat eaters, human and animal. That would explain why those reptoid-like predators were so eager to, to bite some of the U.S. astronauts to death for food. And why we had been warned about that second type of Martian humanoid is a very desperate planet in terms of life provision. But I know that taking down um, 
creatures that are about the size of water buffaloes on this planet was going on. I one time saw one of the reptoids doing that. Not the time that he bit two of my colleagues to death, but one ran along at about 70 miles per hour and took down this water buffalo. Another time I just walked to a certain location and I saw these two Martian humanoids towing one with ropes somewhere. Um, so there is there are there is car- carnivorous behavior on the red planet. I, there must be as well some attempt to harvest vegetative life, but I, I never witnessed that. Um, what did the, the water buffalo of, feed on? I don't know. P- p- probably either smaller life forms. I mean, there were rabbit-like creatures. There were even smaller creatures, snakes and so forth. I, I don't know. We didn't get a full description or full knowledge of what all the different life forms were were uh, were feeding on but there seemed to be a desperate quest to predate against other other animal life forms that would be sort of like what captain Cousteau found on clipperton island which is that atoll about 1300 miles west of baja you know in other words in a climax civilization predators continue to survive by nutrient cycling of other predators. It's not a place that you would want to be as a, as a, uh, as a human being and not a vegetable. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I'm, I, I was just looking at the paper by J.F. Uh, Skipper or J.P. Skipper uh, based on the Thomas Van Flanden information and he identified the, uh, the massive vegetation growths as between 75 degrees to 85 degrees latitude in the south, which I presume would be kind of like similar to the north, that at those latitudes you you have uh, the climate is suitable for forests to or vegetation to grow in abundance, and that would be a, a food supply for for this kind of abundant animal life. And then further towards the, the equatorial regions or those mid-latitudes, Presumably, you would have all these desert areas, um, but there, there would be a food or animal and vegetable supply, kind of like uh, in the in closer to the poles. I I can't discount that interpretation. In fact, in our magnum opus, um, when the discovery of life on Mars reveals, you know, major discoveries by thirty-five major anomalous, twenty-five working for our group Mars, the Mars Anomaly Research Society. We are going to include that original image of the face on Mars at Cydonia, as Mr. Hoagland is holding it up on CNN, which was a critical historical act by Mr. Hoagland, as well as findings by the late Dr. Tom Van Flanderen and J.P. Skipper, who was a friend and colleague of of all of us in, in the quest to show life on Mars. And I'm, I'm just kind of frustrated that it, it, it really should be a major focus of people who are interested about the solar system and the universe, but there's been kind of an attempt to sequester the information with just the minimus discoveries. That, that would be what I would observe. But yes, I, I pretty much agree with that analysis based on what I saw, and then I, I later sought to prove by analyzing NASA NASA's images. Um, I don't think that really answers whether the arcs as interdimensional transports were visiting the actual Mars or 
a Mars-like planet. But if I had to choose betwixt and between those explanations, I'm fairly sure we were going to the actual Mars. Not a so-called synthetic quantum environment as theorized by Mendes. Mm -hmm. I helped Bernie develop that just because we had to be open-minded and not stipulate things that had other explanations. But after analyzing everything, I'm pretty sure it was the actual Mars. Now, the explanation for why I could only at normal male, adult male stride of three feet at five feet, 10 inches tall, I could only stride four rather than 7.5 with that 2.5 differential on a planet 40% the size of Earth. Um, I, I think it was probably because there were metal deposits underneath the ground on Mars. For example, one time when Mendez and Obama and I dug down about six to eight feet, we reached a metallic sur surface that we couldn't get past. It may be that Mars was developed or developed around a kind of a metallic bubble of some kind that was extruded from the sun. It all, that gets into all kinds of theories of creation, of course, but we did find evidence of a kind of a metallic sphere underneath the surface of the planet that we're visiting. But in other areas, the Martian humanoids were able to dig down and create layers down there. So I think that was varied, but some areas were blocked by, uh, by metal. So I think it was a matter of weight and that explained the the mass differential that didn't seem to make much sense in terms of the the 2.5 differential we should have been able to, to stride at, you know, 7.5 feet. Um, so because there were still those open questions, I entertained Bernard Mendez's theory that we could have been, um, you know, visiting a synthetic quantum environment. In fact, I gave it that name as a possible explanation. But Bernie was making some rather even more unusual claims. He was claiming that NASA found photographing the Earth from, from the moon, sometimes that there were four images of Earth. And I just find no support for that observation. He would never go on to prove it or anything. So I, I was kind of mystified as to whether some of my fellow Mars astronauts had been worked with in some way to maybe distort their memories or have them say things that would discredit what we experienced and then what we were later proving with our anomaly research. Well, one of the kind of um, more spectacular claims, I guess, is uh, that you saw in that image, in that 2008 paper, you saw images or you saw shapes that looked like a plesiosaur, both a, a living and dead plesiosaur. So you want to just explain... Absolutely exactly what what it is what what is a plesiosaur how big it would well, have been and whether you I, actually saw any when you were on mars well a plesiosaur technically speaking you know in biology was an ancient uh, aquatic reptile that had a head like a horse a long neck like a snake and a bod a body like um sort of a oh um, an elephant or another large land animal and flippers that's been conjectured from some, for some of the lake mysteries at Loch Ness in Scotland Lake Champlain in New Hampshire or um, 
the one that's been seen in Lake Okanagan in British Columbia. I called these land-based plesiosaurs. In fact, Plesi the plesiosaur became the logo for our organization, Mars, the Mars Anomaly Research Society at Project Mars on Facebook and at projectmars.net elsewhere on the internet. The We called them plesiosaurs because they had these very bulky bodies like elephant or hippos or rhinos and then, you know, sort of flipper-like legs, um, but not as large as the ones, the aquatic reptiles that died out uh, during the KT extinction on Earth, and then the long neck with the horse-like head. Those were all over the surface on Mars. And on my second trip um, on August of 1981, where I went up with Courtney M. Hunt of the CIA, Courtney and I were chased back to one of the jump rooms by one of those plesiosaurs. And as we were, as we got through the mouth of that that skull on the surface, which indicated the jump room facility, I said, "Is that is that type dangerous?" And he said, "Hell yes! That thing has jagged teeth all the way down its throat." So that was trying to eat us. And it took a snap at us right as we leapt through. Courtney said, "At the count of three, I want you to run towards that skull and jump through its mouth." like you're diving into a home plate in baseball. That's what I literally did. I literally took off flying, you know, like Superman to get through that thing before it bit us. And it, it actually smashed its face against the front of that skull trying to eat us. So that was a plesiosaur. Now we called them plesiosaurs, not because they were aquatic, not because they were necessarily the same creatures that have shown up in, you know, uh, Nessie, Champ, or Ogopogo on Earth, but because they looked a lot like the aquatic reptile known as the plesiosaur. We had really no other name for it. Now, Bernie Mendez have been extremely experienced in the solar system for our government. Uh, told me after I published the paper, he said, you know, Andy, those are all over planets on, on many planets in our solar system. And so that, that may literally be just a u- ubiquitous life form. What I remember being told about those, and I noticed, you know, operationally about their behavior is they just are kind of sessile creatures. They're just kind of creatures that just stand still in one place. And then when, when potential food comes near to them, they just go running for it and try to bite it to death. Uh, so maybe that's why there's so many uh, in the solar system. But that's what I was told. I don't know whether that's true. But we definitely saw a lot of those so-called plesiosaurs on the surface of the red planet. Right, and of course, you know, that being a, a large predator, then it would need a lot of food to sustain itself. So it's feeding on other predators or herbivores like these water buffalo that were up there. But essentially you're describing a, a kind of pretty robust ecosystem up there with all these different animals all trying to survive in this kind of desert, arid environment, despite, you know, the northern and the southern kind of higher latitudes having abundant vegetation. Yeah, I I just mean that, you know, it was clearly inhabited, it was clearly dangerous, but there was often, you know, it's kind of like that statement that's made about warfare, you know, what is it, long periods of boredom punctuated by short periods of absolute terror. The existence of human and animal life forms on the surface 
only occasioned such terror during isolated moments, but we were often just walking along without seeing anything or walking through an area that had very minimal vegetation. Um, I don't remember walking through an area that was heavily verdant. And, and yet it is inhabited and the life forms that have survived there are very effective predators. For example, the, the plesiosaurs clearly were, as I said, sessile, and then they take a run at something to eat. And then after the, the reptoid, that was about that 16 foot tall sort of velociraptor with a T-Rex head that looked slightly like a chicken head that killed Bob and then bit David to death right in front of us. I asked Courtney as it was staring at us, you know, I thought, oh, well, now we're gonna be bitten to death. I said, Courtney, is that gonna now bite us to death? And he said, no, I don't think so. I said, why not? How do you know that? We're like whispering as it thinks like 20 feet away or 30 feet away. And he said, because they're very fastidious eaters, we think because they don't wanna overeat and get logy. So after that guy gobbled up a large part of one of our fellow astronauts, he didn't attack us, he just scampered off. So that's something we knew, that if we were fortunate enough to make the cut and not lose our lives in the, in the teeth of one of the predators, they would probably then just scamper away because they had fed and they didn't want to become, um, to gorge themselves because that would make them more prone to predation. So it clearly showed the marks of a climax civilization despite the vegetation, very similar to Clipperton Island you know, off of Mexico where certain, I remember Captain Cousteau showed how certain crab species are eating each other. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what the the Martian, the original type of Martian humanoid is doing by eating earthlings when they have a chance. You know, they're predating against fellow humanoids. Okay, so you also mentioned in your 2008 paper a scorpion man dragging a woman away and, and other hooded figures were helping him. And so you uh, thought that this was probably one of the humans that uh, had been taken to Mars, you know, the 1500. Potentially, yeah. Yes, yeah, so uh, what, what is this scorpion man? Is this again one of the creatures you saw up there or is that your kind of like you're studying the, the image and coming up with that conclusion? The latter. I, I found a scorpion, a scorpion man and others have found both scorpion creatures and statues and then i found the goddess seclid in the egyptian pantheon who was a woman with the body of a scorpion so that could indicate the presence of the earthling civilization during the high egyptian epoch of civilization on this planet that then got cut off from us with the solar system catastrophe of 9500 bc what about 11,500 years ago so yes there there was a very clear image of a creature, the scorpion man, with a companion that looked a little bit more like a caterpillar. And I saw some of those sort of caterpillar snakes, humanoid-faced caterpillar-like or snake-like creatures when I was there. But there's next, sitting or laying right next to the scorpion man is this caterpillar-like being with more of a humanoid face. And there's so much detail on the scorpion man that original scorpion man we concluded that it was a life form now lewis reinhardt would then find what was either more scorpion men or statues of scorpion men 
that very much like some of the plesiosaurs, the one that I concluded was like a fossil or a statue was one who was leaping out of a hill that looked like essentially a dead plesiosaur where the, the soil around it had just exfoliated. But the original plesiosaur and the original scorpion man was so dynamic in terms of color, form, in some cases apparent movement, that we concluded that they were currently living life forms. And we saw such on the surface. But did I see a scorpion man or a woman there? No, but I did see one of the, uh, one or two of the uh, caterpillar humanoids. Mm -hmm. Well, I also saw one of the uh, news releases on your website or the Mars Anomaly website, dated January 17, 2010. And the title was, Bashago makes startling discovery <coughs> of striding gremlin near Martian trees. Now, you mentioned the, the striding gremlin before and the time lapse, but I looked at the photo in that image and, you know, frankly, it, it really didn't, to me, um, prove anything. I mean, it definitely wasn't definitive proof. It was it was very interesting hypothesis, but, you know, I would uh, be very careful to kind of like well, say it no, was I, a gremlin. I, I mean... You have to start from the premise that with modern photography and modern computer science, if it looks, sounds like, and walks like an elephant, it's an elephant. When I, the way that the striding gremlin was found is there was a picture that, as I said, went all over the world showing trees on Mars. And we blew up the image to see creatures. Now the striding gremlin, I do not believe is arguable. Now I'm legally blind now, but I had 2013 vision, and I was using the specialized methodology that I that I included with my paper, the Discovery of Life on Mars. And the striding gremlin was so sharp uh, that Patricio Barrancos of Argentina went in and colorized it. So he was able to see all of its parts and all of the different color between the image of the striding gremlin and the background. It was literally this thing that looked almost like a long frog like a stretched out frog just walking along the surface i didn't see any of those on the surface but i might have been shown those by ed dames when we were in training i, I don't really remember but the striding gremlin nobody affiliated with mars and this would be thousands of people made the same conclusion so this may go to the issue of pq some people see things and say aha that's that's a life form and others say well, it hasn't been proved. And honestly, I think that comes down more to belief than finding. Because, as I said, my vision was 2013 when I investigated and wrote the paper. And the striding gremlin, in my opinion, was crystal clear. Just as much if you had a gazelle in Africa, you'd say, well, there's a gazelle, a gazelle not a pareidolia of a tree or something that looks like a gazelle. Well, you in other know words, I don't believe it was arguable. I, I looked at that same image, I mean, on your site, and you had... Was it the colorized one or the, the original? Well, it looked like a, it was colorized, and I... The colorized I, one changed it into art, an art form by Patricio Barrancos. That was an attempt to create a masthead for Mars on Facebook. That wasn't the original finding. The original finding is a sharp, as sharp as, I don't know how to describe it, catching a rainbow trout... And standing there with the rainbow trout in your hands and being able to look down at it in your hands and see the rainbow pattern on the side of the trout. It was 
and the edges of the fish and the head of the fish and the tail and the fins. It, it was there. It was just like any image of a life form. So I, I think that, I think that the skepticist uh, philosophy has done damage to people's ability to see something new and see it as it is. And that kind of reminds me of when Western sailing ships began appearing in the, you know, the island people of the Pacific. Sometimes they couldn't see the sailing ships. Other times they thought they were dragons. Uh, only when men began debarking, disembarking uh, from the ships, they said, oh my God, they're sailing vessels and we're being invaded. I mean, the the inability of people to see what was published and recognize it for what it is, is something that continues to mystify me. Now, I think I have an excuse because my eyes are misted by retinopathy, which hopefully I'll get a... Uh, a a technical fix for um, and see see sharply again. But the original image of the striding gremlin or Ross Curley's speckled gremlin were right there. Like if you took a picture of, you know, your best friend in your backyard and you could tell the difference between your friend's face and, and their shirt and anything else in your backyard, it was there. That's the best I can respond, Michael, because I just don't share the paradolist argument. I, I, and quite frankly, I'm not accusing you of this because I believe that you're an honorable gentleman and, and a scholar, but and I know you too well, but um, that you are. But I believe that the paradolia argument has been used in, in my Mars findings and the findings of others who have made very significant contributions to this field, like Skipper, Van Flanderen, Haas and Saunders, Reinhard, Curley, and others to kind of discount my findings the same way that the notion that you can you can't time travel has been used to knock down the fact that I've talked about working with Harold Agnew, the quintessential Manhattan Project physicist. In other words, I think pareidolia is a clever government disinformational ploy to to prevent people from looking at a duck and saying, my God, look at that, a duck on Mars. You know, there weren't ducks on Mars, but there were rabbits. There were all kinds of creatures on the surface, but not that many. You know, I said 30, maybe 30 major land animals. Maybe it was closer to 50, but it was not the the fecund biome that Earth is. I never had the opportunity to see Earth close from space, like from the moon and appreciate this beautiful planet. Uh, I did see it in the distance one time in a tiny little dot when I was on the surface, but I was on another planet that is virtually devoid of life. Well, and you know, as I said, that, that I just want to say that, you know, I'm on, on the project Mars.net website, which I assume is affiliated with you. And, and there's this kind of notice about your claim the striding gremlin near near mars and it's a, it is a colorized version of what what may have been a more accurate black and white version that that you referred to and and you say that there's this striding gremlin um that appears to be part of this kind of like what looks like a, a group of a clump of trees carrying a uh what is what appears to be a small human now yes. you know to, to me that's 
yeah, that's really stretching it. You know, it's stretching it. And to me, it looks like a, a group of trees, and yeah, which is in itself remarkable. No, a remarkable no, finding. that's the way that that picture was spun. But then when we used my innovative technology to enlarge small amounts of the picture, the striding gremlin is there as you would be if you photographed a fox in a forest. And what we saw was it looked like it possibly could be a man in his clutches. But it basically looks like a tall, elongated frog striding along with something in its hands. It could have been some other form of food or something. We don't know. But it's there, as, as was um, images like the speckled grammar. Now, when we found, you know, Ross Carley, Curley's image of the face of a pharaoh on Mars, it was clearly an artifact. It was clearly like an intaglio carved in to a piece of rock or metal on Sol 2012 of Spirit's uh, sojourn on Mars as a Mars uh, exploration rover. But I don't believe you're you're taking a defensible position. I, I, I don't mean to fault you again, because I do view you as a gentleman and a scholar, but there has been such abundant evidence on life on Mars that I think skepticists are reifying their belief rather than well, our findings. Now, firstly, did you see a speckled gremlin on Mars, or did you see um, a, a, a striding gremlin on Mars when you were up there? Because, you know, th we need to separate between things that you saw up there that you know are real and images that substantiate your experiences as opposed to you looking at a Mars image and say, oh, yeah, I see a, uh, a striding gremlin well, on that. Well, let me say that, look, on, on the outset of examining any photograph, I mean, if you have a picture of President Lincoln, and there's some kind of paranormal effect where somebody not from his time shows up standing next to him. Not, not my Josephine Cobb image, but let's just say a, a sort of a ghost image in, in a Lincoln photograph. With any photograph, you don't know whether the photograph as emulsified was capturing everything that was there. Now, in answer to the question you just asked, some of the things I was trained in and some of the things I saw on the surface that I was trained in or that were my own just happenstance discoveries on the surface showed up in NASA's images, like the plesiosaurs. Some of the more exotic creatures were not necessarily seen on the red planet. In the case of the speckled gremlin, where I present that time-lapse photography of like three or four different images, where it begins appearing, it appears, and then it begins disappearing, and then disappears. It's blinks out maybe that was a life form that regularly goes invisible I, we don't know this is an emergent science we are seeing the first images of life on mars what we have to do is to look at new things for the first time and be able to see them and that what was before my uh before my vision was either just as a result of his disease processes or a direct attack on me I don't currently have that ability, but I hope to get that back and continue that work. So, no, not everything in the images from NASA, from what, Rover's Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, and that fourth one, I don't even know the name of it, um, show things that we saw on the surface, but not everything we've seen on the surface has even been photographed yet. I've been keeping one animal back 
In fact, I think I'll release it soon on Project Mars on Facebook in a description, maybe in a, in a contest to see who's the first anomalous to find that image on the surface. I don't want to say what it is. Um, it was the one that we called a darning needle, but nobody will be able to guess what it was shaped like. So some of the things we were trained in and saw on the surface have shown up in NASA's images. Some have not. And then some of the things that are in their, in their images we never saw on the red planet. So we're dealing with a diversity of images here, those that we saw and and those we never saw and that NASA has captured. Well, well, well I think the, the images that match what you saw on Mars, uh, that is very interesting and very significant because, you know, you, you have what appears to be, you know, as, as you say, a plesiosaur. You know, that's a photo. And a lot of people would be skeptical, as I was at the very beginning. But the, you know, the thing is that you actually described having seen a plesiosaur and actually escaping one that was attacking you. So that, that would actually oh, yes. be corroboration for your claim. So that, that I, I can accept that. You know, but for something like this, the striding gremlin that you haven't seen yourself on Mars, then um, you know, I, I wouldn't dismiss critics saying, that, well, that's just Basiago and, and pareidolia. Well, that's, um, I think that's silly because there have been so many findings by so many anomalies now, 35. At least those are the ones we've isolated as making major contributions to the field. That this is no longer sort of a a nascent art or science. In other words, and, and also let me say that the way I was writing the papers from the very beginning was highly phenomenological, not not the last word scientifically, but the the first indication of what we were looking at. And from the beginning, I was trying to lead the Mars anomaly field to say, everybody, include, please include a description of what you think you see, where it was taken, and what the possible explanations are. In other words, to say that I'm, you know, Bashago has been showing pareidolia because he suffers from it is a little bit silly because what I was doing was showing things that were popping up from the background of NASA's images that revealed something. I was saying, this is what we're going to call it so we can so we can for example go back and take another photograph of that location has it moved has it morphed into another shape i mean the speckled gremlin essentially appears is standing there and then blinks out so it could be a life form as i said that has a non-linear term maybe it, it, it like bigfoot it can disappear i mean we're, we're just we're, i was presenting the initial evidence that indicated life on Mars, and we knew that Mars was inhabited, but we didn't know every last aspect of life on Mars. These were the first images of life beyond our planet. And by the way, having been asked with Obama and Guggen to work on the CIA's threat assessment of the Martian humanoid civilization, I was documenting this stuff to protect Earth and Earthlings. In other words, if if you've got predation of humanoids on the red planet, and we know there was at least one of these strange gremlin creatures that was able to blink out, what's to stop the possibility that it could blink uh, yeah, but, back but into you're existence mix, on but, the surface of but, our planet? But you're mixing things here, Andy. I mean, the, there are things that you saw and reported on from 1981 to 1984, and, and things that you saw in the Mars 
rover images uh, in that 2008 paper and, and subsequently, you know, they're, they're different. I mean, you can't say that that's the same. I mean, what you saw on Mars and well, reported... I, mean, I, I essentially agree with that, but I couldn't, I couldn't go back and say, this is what I saw on the surface of the Red Planet, because people would say, where is your evidence? So I used an empirical method of enlarging the information from NASA's photograph, because I realized that they were intentionally using a huge vista. They were intentionally taking incredibly broad vistas. I mean, if we were to drive our car to Mulholland Drive in Los Angeles and look out at the San Fernando Valley, we might see some lights, but we wouldn't be able to see a Burger King down there or a Taco Bell. I mean, they, they were taking images that were so vast, so overblown, that the method that I developed was to hone in at a much tighter resolution to see what was really there. They were oblating it by taking images so so greatly expect, expanded. And I wasn't making a one-to-one -one correlation between what I saw on the surface, 1981 to 84, and what I was finding in NASA's images post-2008. I was just taking images and enlarging parts of them and saying, look at what we found here. Let's call this a striding gremlin, etc." It wasn't the last word, it was the first word. So I think we have to not attack the messenger any more than we can attack Charles Darwin for writing Origin of the Species. Maybe we'll find that Darwin was wrong and mm -hmm. life was created on Earth. I tend okay. to think it probably was. Mm -hmm. But still, he was introducing the theory of evolution, and I think that what I introduced was the fact that at least one planet beyond our own is inhabited. It does possess life. Mm -hmm. That has been the ultimate thrust of my work. It wasn't to frame every last description or definition at all. Well, I just want to kind of shift gears a little bit now to one of the other news releases that you put out on October 31st, 2009, which is titled Humans, Human Forms Found in Glass Tubes on Mars. Now, I know those glass tubes on Mars have been uh, analysed by a number of researchers and they appear to be what may have been an ancient transportation system. So what, what do you know about those glass tubes on Mars, you know, both from your experiences on Mars and, and your own analysis of the images? I didn't encounter the inside of any glass tubes. I may have seen glass tubes a few times, was kind of fascinated with what they were. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the glass tubes are are safety tubes where Martian humanoids can walk or run on the surface and you know, move on the surface without being victimized by predators. I do think it's also possible that they were ancient glass tubes with some fossilized life forms. It's been many, many years, but since I wrote that press release, I believe my point was that they are human forms. In other words, we don't know, really know in that case whether they were living forms walking through the tubes or ancient bodies of humanoids that once did and somehow got trapped in there. Now, I do think that the glass tube story is kind of an important transitional one because kind of between the Paradola skepticist position and the confident discovery of life on Mars position that I took, indeed led, I think the glass tube issue 
I believe it, it attracted the attention of people like Richard C. Hoagler, possibly even J.P. Skipper before he passed away a number of years ago. Um, I don't think that Dr. Van Flandern addressed it before his untimely passing, but I do think that they're fascinating and they were at the same time they were kind of frustrating because the outer surface of the glass tubes sort of oblated the clarity of the humanoids inside. But since I had run through something like that underground with the assistance of four very peculiar shaped humanoids, I'm talking about almost like a Wookiee. There was that one that I had contact with that looked kind of like, almost like a centipede with a human head. There are some very strange creatures on the red planet. But since I had actually run to safety through a very elaborate system of hallways in their predominantly underground civilization. That's my guess on the glass tubes. They were a safety technique to allow Martian humanoids to go up onto the surface and look at things and, and be protected. I also have kind of a screen memory of being up on the surface after 1984 and being invited to walk down this hall of a US facility and there was a huge window across from which there were three slabs of rock that had slammed into Mars at an angle. And they were just sitting propped into the, into the ground. I mean, very large um, slabs of rock about the size of cliffs uh, any, anywhere in the American Southwest. And they had kind of slammed into Mars. And that was kind of a scenic picture that had been, it, it was kind of a, a U.S. facility that had been shaped almost as kind of like a viewing platform to look at this amazing natural rock form on the Martian surface. So I think since 1984, we have built some pretty elaborate viewing stations like that on the surface. Maybe that was inspired by these glass tubes. That would be my guess that to, to see what was going by them on the surface, maybe they went up to the glass tubes and just walked along and then looked out, but certainly that did attract something beyond the face of Mars uh, at Cydonia by Mr. Hoagland and, and others. It became sort of an, an intermediate finding. So, so we'll say, wait a minute, the face on Mars at Cydonia is not the only thing worth looking at on the surface of the red planet. Look, look at these glass tubes. Mm-hmm. Well, this is something, uh, an issue that maybe we'll have to take up the next time uh, we, we do an interview, which is... Uh, underground Mars bases. There have been a number of people that talked about underground Mars bases, deep underground, and uh, nothing you've mentioned so far suggests anything about those. So just maybe as a little bit of a teaser before we resume, um, what what do you know about underground Mars bases? Well, many of the jump rooms would be decanted to about one story below ground on the red planet. There was that one trip that I mentioned where Courtney Hunt and I were invited by that Homo Martis Marsus, Martis, one of the original Martian types, to his underground residence. And it was it was almost like being in Carlsbad Cavern without stalactites and stalagmites. And yet Paisley designs had been sort of crafted into the roof. And there were elevators and other things with pneumatic tubing. So my impression is that the two types of Martian humanoids, as was confirmed by Virginia Olds of the CIA, 
are collaborative and peaceable between themselves and are staying alive under the surface. So that was under the surface. But in terms of being deep underground the Martian surface, no. That third time when I was, in that third example, when I was walking along those hallways with the assistance of these three or four rather strange Martians who were getting me away from a danger, um, that again wasn't, you know, hundreds of miles under the ground. It was, it was like one story below ground. Uh, so that exists. I'm not sure like when Israeli General Haim Ashed made his announcement of U.S. astronauts and gray ETs working collaboratively on Mars, which he, you know, of course, released on December 9th of 2020. I don't think necessarily he was talking about very far beneath the Martian surface. I think he simply meant underground. But sure, I was underground the Martian surface in those three examples, different jump rooms that we would arrive at were underground. The uh, Martian humanoid showed us his underground residence, if you will. I can't call it a house. It was more like a cavernous layer. And and then the uh, time I went through those tunnels with the help of those those different Martian creatures. Well, we'll definitely have to kind of resume the discussion on this um, the next time uh, we we talk. Uh, I just wanted to give you a few minutes because I think you wanted to make a statement about some people m- uh, misquoting you regarding your presidential uh, campaign or aspirations for the future. So I just wanted to give you a few minutes to talk about that and, and we will go into it in more detail the next time uh, we talk. Yeah, I just wanted to state that I feel that I've been subject to defamation and discreditment, perhaps by individuals actually working for what we've come to call the deep state, about things I said regarding the presidency. So I just want to be clear about the three major data points that I've addressed about the presidency and then what I said and knew when I ran in 2016, because that's been totally distorted into it out of recognition, out, out of any semblance of what I said and what my views were. The first data point that I shared was that when I was on Project Pegasus, my dad took me to some kind of chronovisor like Videodrome somewhere in New Mexico. And I was shown what looked like images of me serving as president. Like, oh, here I am in the in the East Room, you know, addressing the press or something. I was never told during those that that experience, look at these, Andy, because you're gonna be president. Okay. Then in 1980, after my father had taken Barry Satoro, who of course would later become Barack Obama, up to the Hoopa Indian Reservation Airport north of Weed, California, so he could fly to Portland, Oregon to take a flight to Hawaii to visit his grandparents, Stanley Armour Dunham and Madeline Dunham. And we had a discussion in the car as we were going up there. As I was driving back with my late father after we dropped Barry off at the airport, I said, Dad, is it really true that I've become president? And he said, yep. And I said, when? And he said, so does Barry. And I said, really? When? When when do we become president? And he said, Barry in his late 40s and you in your late 60s. Now, years later, long before I ran for president in 2015, 2016, I asked Courtney Hunt of the CIA three times, 
Courtney, do I really reach the White House? This was a third set of data points. The first time he said, yep, but I don't know how you get there. The second time he said, he kind of hesitated, he said, no, but you're going to be on the scene, indicating perhaps that I might reach the Senate or something or vice president. And then the third time he said something more quizzical. He said, um, he only said, have you been briefed? He didn't say yes, but he said, listen, have you been briefed on 2015? And that was like around 2005 because Courtney died like in 2007. And then, of course, I began running in December of 2015, 11 years after I came forward about um, about Project Pegasus. And as a result of all the things I knew when I ran in 2015, at age 54, I knew I wasn't going to win. But running, it didn't make sense to run and then start announcing, but I know I'm not going to win because I would have come off as a total flake. <laughs> when you when you engage in a contest, whether it's the Olympics or the presidency or whatever, you try to win or, or why compete, right? So I didn't talk about it. Some people remembered that. They would say, didn't you say you're going to become president in your late 60s? And I would say, yeah, that's the truth. But I'm not popularizing that fact now that I'm running. I've just decided to run. And then they would say, well, why are you running? And I said, I don't expect to win, but I'm just learning the ropes. Now, as a result of that, people have been purporting some kind of proof that my time travel claims have not been true because I didn't become present. Well, first of all, that's quite frankly an asinine reading of quantum access because when you have quantum access information of the future, if something doesn't happen, you don't have the rest of the future left. And with the President Biden at age 80, I think now that I'm age 61, it's not exactly excluded as a possibility that I'll become president in my late 60s or maybe my late 70s or my 80s. I don't know. But all I'm saying is this kind of um, smarmy proof that, oh, Andy didn't become president, so he must have been lying about time travel, just doesn't fit the facts. And then once you establish what the real facts are, you see that when I did run in 2015, 2016, for the 2016 election that Mr. Trump won, I literally was stating, look, I know I have no party. I have limited funding. And quite frankly, Michael, it was a miracle that I had the best received platform, my platform 100 proposals, and that I got around 25,000 votes as an independent. I had no party, no funding. I think I got about 25,000 worth of donations for two years, each of the two, you know, 2015 and 16. So – My point was, I was saying, look, there have been many Americans who have run for the Senate or the House, for example, and lost and then become president. For example, Abraham Lincoln running for Senate in 1858 and uh, Bill Clinton running for the House in, what, 1972 or something. And then George H.W. Bush running for Senate from Texas in 1970. Those are three American presidents that I admire for different reasons. Um, Because because I've always gone with the man, not the party, and their positions. And they ran and lost races and then became president. So I was sort of admitting when I ran for the 2016 election that I don't think I'm going to win. I'm just running to 
test the ropes, just to have an experience of running for something. Well, and I think I, that... also, in addition to that, I was concerned that the 2016 race was not, and who was going to replace Mr. Obama, was not stacking up into what Toby Moffat uh, of Connecticut once called the politics of meaning. And so I ran to inject meaning into the 2016 race and i'm proud that i did because my platform 100 proposals well let's uh, andy let's by six different uh, well andy let's let's kind of put an end to it here because this is something i i want to take up with you the next time we talk and we can go into details about your 100 proposals and your 2016 campaign and what what you think may happen in the future so I just right, want to... right. I'd be happy to do that, Mike. I just so really to just kind of cut to the chase. The, the the issue I just wanted popularizes an understanding that I knew I wasn't going to run it. I wasn't going to win in 2016, and it's not axiomatic that because I didn't come, become president, that means I wasn't telling the truth about time travel. I was dealing with things that had been shared with me in an evolving government program that was studying and and developing time travel. And my life's not over. So you can't say that that's that's a, a logical conclusion. It's almost sort of like a character assault upon me that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in terms of what I was told, nor what that information implies. Well, I think these are fascinating topics for us to take up the next time uh, we meet. So I want to thank you, Andy, for coming on Excel Politics today and sharing your experiences and insights. Thank you, Michael. You have been listening to ExoPolitics today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com. Thank you.